Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. I remember watching a video of a Chabad rabbi introducing Rabbi Sachs to speak at their annual conference and he said some things in life are a privilege and some things in life are a pleasure but it's those unique moments in life that are both a privilege and a pleasure and I have to say that today for me is one of those moments uh, because I'm joined by Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is a radio host I believe he's been a radio host for several decades now. He's a prolific author. We have some of his books here and we're going to talk about some of them. Um, he's a well-known current affairs commentator on political and religious matters. And he's also the father of a massively successful online video channel called PragerU. It does something called edutainment, uh, which is one of my favorite words. And it's kind of what I think is needed now, which is tries to combine education with entertaining content. Um, his books include a book called Why the Jews, which is about uh, trying to make sense of anti-Semitism. Um, he wrote a book on happiness called Happiness is a Serious Problem. And he's also recently coming out with, and I say that in the present tense because it's still happening, a series of books that are basically a commentary on the Bible. I'm holding up one of them here called The Rational Bible. It is brilliant. It's entirely in English and its attempt is to try to make the Bible, the, I believe he's just starting with the five books of Moses, um, more accessible. And I highly recommend you consider purchasing a copy. You can find it on both Amazon in the UK uh, and in America depending on where you're watching. Is it, is it, I don't know if it's available in Israel and perhaps Dennis can uh, clarify that. But Dennis, first of all, I'm really honoured to have you here on JTV. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, out to be here today. I'm honoured that you invited me. Thank you. You, you think that, the, I mean, you're, you're passionate about everyone needing more biblical wisdom in their lives and society needing that, whether they're Jew or non-Jew. Um, do you believe that everyone needs biblical wisdom in their lives and why? Number one, drop the word biblical without wisdom evil takes place uh, the there's a genius story which any jew watching this knows there are four sons described at the passover seder uh, they are the evil son or bad son the wise son the son who doesn't know how to ask and the simple son and even as a child, I would say starting in high school, I, I didn't understand why was there no good son? If there's a bad son, why isn't there a good son? And there, there, here's the reason. The opposite uh, of evil is, is not simply good. The opposite of evil is wise. You cannot have goodness without wisdom. We live in the age of foolishness. There was a renaissance, there was an enlightenment, age of reason. We now live in the age of foolishness. And that's, it's particularly true among the well-educated who are, in my opinion, the most foolish. So the, the human being, the human species cannot survive without wisdom. Good intentions without wisdom lead, lead to hell lead to dystopia so if you get your wisdom from aristotle or plutarch or other classical writers or shakespeare i think that's great uh, i uh, however who who's reading them today at the university of pennsylvania the english department removed 
the painting of Shakespeare because he was a white European male. And so they put uh, a, a woman of color who was a lesbian in his place because they, if universities no longer believe in wisdom, they believe in race, gender, and class. So if you get your wisdom from the, the great Roman and Greek writers and from Shakespeare and et cetera, that, that's, uh, you're, you're way ahead of most, but the, the greatest wisdom is to be found in the Torah. And that's, that's why when I write these books, I think of a Chinese peasant who never heard of Moses. And can I make sense to that person what uh, the Torah has to say? That's, that's, the, that's the reader I'm envisioning. Dennis, were you always into Judaism and, and Torah? Um, or any teenagers, teenage rebellions along the way or anything like that? <laughs> well, I, I did. I, I, well, I never rebelled for the sake of rebellion, but I, I, I did not adhere to the halacha as, uh, as my parents would have wanted. And I, but it wasn't a rebellion because I didn't want them to know it. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. But uh, I, I'm somewhat of an anomaly. I am an Orthodox Jew with a small O, but, but not a capital O. And that means that I have Orthodox beliefs, but I don't have full Orthodox practice. Okay, okay. And I, I want to talk about some of the ideas that you touch on in your commentary on the Bible, but also throughout your other books. One of the key themes is happiness. Um, that you've written a book about this, as we mentioned at the beginning. Um, but the Torah also talks about serving God with joy. Um, and I feel like it's actually a, t a subject that isn't given enough attention. You say that it's a moral obligation to be happy. Um, does, can you explain why, why you believe this is the case? Does the Bible touch on this? And also, in your book, you sort of say, you seem to be arguing that it really is in our hands, um, despite whatever situation you're in. And, you know, I've been thinking over the past year uh, and seeing a lot of the challenges that people have been facing, a lot of emotional suffering actually in turmoil from the kind of the isolation that uh, has resulted from, from COVID. And I sometimes do wonder, is there, are there ever scenarios in which sometimes happiness can be a little bit out of one's control just because of the situation? Are you prepared to, would you, would you concede that at least? You want me to begin at the end or the beginning? which I've thrown a lot at you, so you can choose. I'll begin at the end. I, I live in the same world you live. Suffering is part of the human condition. And in fact, in my book on happiness, I actually have a chapter on a tragic view of life, which I have. And that's part of the reason that I'm happy. And I explain it as follows. Because I understand that the tragic is, is inevitable. I die and everyone I love will die, hopefully after me. Uh, although obviously my parents I loved and they died before me. But I mean, the very fact that we all die, even if we had a great life, that, that's a tragedy. I mean, there's no way around it. Death, death is very sad. And for some people, this is something that I have spent a lot of time with on my radio show for 
because I talk about everything on my show, not just politics. And uh, I, I have gotten to speak to probably at least 100 people over the course of my life in person or on the radio who have lost a child. And that, that's about as horrible a loss as a human can sustain. And of course, many who have lost their spouse. When my, when my father lost my mother, they were married, they were together 72 years, married 69. My father, who was a very happy uh, individual, uh, he, he was not happy another day in his life for the six years he lived after her. So I'm, I'm, I'm well aware, well aware of human suffering and the pain that is involved in life. Uh, it, obviously, I wouldn't have written a book titled Happiness is a Serious Problem if I didn't recognize that it's a challenge. But the fact that it is a challenge doesn't uh, negate my deep belief that it is a moral obligation to at least act happy uh, and hopefully then as a result of acting happy, become happy. Abraham Lincoln, this wouldn't uh, be known to, to most of your viewers, but a Abraham Lincoln, in fact, it wouldn't even be known to most American viewers because they don't learn history in schools any longer. But Abraham Lincoln uh, led a very tragic life. He, he, he lost two of his sons whom he adored. Uh, his wife was what we would call today probably manic depressive. His country were, were, were massacring each other in the hundreds of thousands, and this is the 1860s. That's a lot of people in any time, and certainly then. And he uh, had a very famous line, people are as happy as they decide to be. He decided to be happy despite all of this pain. And that's a decision everybody should make. The, the reason is, number one, we owe it to everyone in our lives. Uh, you owe it to your spouse to have a happy disposition. A, a miserable spouse, a moody spouse, is, a, is a, a, as big a challenge to marital harmony as anything I can imagine. And we owe it to our children. Uh, ask a child raised by a depressed parent what it was like, and, and you will never ask, why do I argue that people need to act happy or try to be happy? Uh, the, the damage done to children by a depressed parent, uh, the damage done to a parent by a depressed child, and as I said, uh, to marriages. Uh, ask people, uh, ask the depressed, who would you rather spend a, a month on an island with? A person as moody as you or a happy person? See, the moody can't stand being with the moody. In fact, it's my theory that the moody never marry the moody. Every marriage is either two non-moody's or a moody and a non-moody. But I've never in my life, and I've been around, met two moody's marry each other. The moody never marry one of their own. They're not stupid. Uh, they, they, they always marry someone who is happier than they are. Everyone, everyone wants to be around happy people. I don't mean giddy, superficial, constantly laughing, but having a happy, upbeat disposition. Now... I got this from Judaism. Judaism is a behavioral religion. Act X, you'll feel X. It is an astonishing thing how much the Torah uh, uh, commands besamachta, 
and, and you shall be happy. Uh, or Ashrei Ha'ish, that's not in uh, the Torah, it's in the Tanakh, it's in the later Bible. But it's filled with, with commands to, to be happy, to rejoice. And how about this, the ultimate, which is not in the Torah, it's, it's rabbinic, but is, is uh, quite old and remarkable, as I'm sure many of your viewers know, and I'm, I know you know, uh, if even when you're sitting Shiva, you cannot sit Shiva on Shabbat. That's an astonishing thing that it's almost chutzpah that the religion will tell you, I'm sorry, but you can't mourn the loss of your loved one on Shabbat. Go back to it on Saturday night. Judaism is deeply behavioral and it is very, very uh, deeply uh, committed to happy. Uh, uh, another religious argument. The best argument for atheism is unhappy religious people. <laughs> a miserable religious person is the greatest argument for atheism, and a happy religious person is the greatest argument for religiosity. I am very involved with Chabad, and I speak for them around the world. And I have often noted that a big part of their success is because Chabad rabbis are known for being happy. And they have as many problems in life as everybody else, but they have a cheerful disposition. And this was not true uh, in, in much of Orthodox life outside of Chabad. Uh, when one thinks of an, the East European shtetl Jew, one doesn't think of a happy-go-lucky character. Uh, it's just the way it is. I'm not, it's not a critique. It's just a fact. Yeah. And, and in fact, that was a big part of Hasidut was to, to worship God and enjoy. Whereas that was not the case in much of uh, Misnagdish uh, or non-Hasidic non Judaism. So he, though, I'll, I'll end with one final thing. I have broadcast since 1999 an hour of my show each week. I have a three-hour daily show across the United States. The second hour every Friday is called the Happiness Hour. And in the introduction to it each week, I note, the happy make the world better, the unhappy make it worse. And people don't know how true that is. Uh, happy people do not tear down societies. Happy people don't become communists or Nazis. Uh, and in fact, in the contemporary situation, I've never met a happy leftist. I've met happy liberals. I've met happy conservatives. I've met unhappy conservatives and unhappy liberals, but I've never met a happy leftist. As soon as you get happy, you leave the left. You can become a liberal. I don't say you become a conservative, but uh, the, the people tearing down the cities in America last year were, were not happy people. And what our universities are doing, and I think this is somewhat true in the UK as well, is teaching people about how miserable their lives are because their societies are miserable. And uh, there, there is, it's almost a mitzvah to be uh, unhappy. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of happiness. Just two follow-up points to that. Number one, in terms of what you just said at the end, is there not a place, I'm not necessarily saying in the case of what the universities are teaching, but is there not ever a place for righteous indignation? And the second point I'd ask, and forgive me if this is too personal, but would you say in the case of your father, who you said was never happy after he lost uh, your mother, 
Um, are you saying he? Are you saying according to this, he just he should have tried a bit harder? So I no. You can ask me anything. I I, I think personal questions are often helpful because they make me more real. So I, I have no problem with that. Uh, let me begin with the righteous indignation. I have daily righteous indignation. My anger at the left for destroying the United States and the and Western civilization is very deep, but I have a happy disposition. I do what I can to fight them, and uh, then I celebrate life. Uh, in fact, uh, as I, I tell my friends, if you get down, you've given them a major victory. I don't want to hand them a victory, so I don't hand them my happiness. So righteous indignation is not the opposite of happiness. Unhappiness is the opposite of happiness. And uh, as regards my father, my father uh, wrote his autobiography. He published it himself. It's a wonderful book, actually. And, and he called it uh, Attitude and Gratitude. That was his theme in life. So I, I do want to note that while I knew the the sadness that pervaded his life after my mother's death, he did not walk around moping. In, in other words, if you visited him, he had a cheerful disposition and he was constantly grateful for the years he had with my mother and constantly grateful for the wonderful life that he had led until then. But uh, I was being honest with regard to your question, do I not recognize that things can happen that are just so awful that they cause people to be less happy? And, and so I gave him as an example. But if you had visited my father during those six years, you would not have left and said, I was just with a depressed man. Okay, I want to move to um, some Jewish issues in a moment, but just one more sort of topic of general wisdom and perhaps how that might apply to your uh, Bible commentary. Um, I've seen uh, some, some of your content where you talk about friendship. Um, this is a very important topic to me um, as someone, you know, with a few friends and also as uh, someone that's single at the moment and, you know, beginning my adult life. Um, and you said that a friend is someone who you can tell everything to and the more you hide, the less close you are. First of all, I just want to thank you so much for this teaching because this is so enlightening. It's actually changed you know, over the past few, few years, my, my, my concept of what friendship really means. And it might have made, meant that I, in some ways I may have uh, lost a friend or two in terms of my own perspective, um, but it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. Um, I feel like I would also um, uh, add that it's, uh, aside from sharing, being able to share everything with them, it's also that they are sort of supportive and can help you become better as, as a result once you've shared that with them. And I just want to know whether you'd, you'd agree with that. I suspect you would. And um, are there any sources in the Bible that come to mind when, when you think of friendship? I'm, I'm delighted that you picked up on that because uh, everything I do uh, is in the hope that I will touch somebody's life. I'm being, so you wanted me to be personal, that's as personal, it's quite personal. I, I know that I have a lot of answers. I don't have all the answers. I don't know why God made the mosquito as an example. Uh, there are many riddles. I don't even know why God made man for that matter. 
that, that's, that's somewhat of a mystery as well. But uh, I do have a lot of answers within, within the human condition, and I want to share them while I am uh, well and, and able to touch a lot of lives, which thank God I've been able because of the public nature of my work. So I'm glad you, you picked up on that. I, I, I knew this uh, when I was in high school. Uh, I always had a, a male friend or two whom I loved. I mean, I would have no problem. I never had a problem hugging men, saying I loved them. And I, the men in my life have been of uh, immeasurable, literally immeasurable uh, importance uh, to me. So yes, uh, that's the definition or one of the definitions, someone to whom you can say everything. That is the ideal in a marriage as well. I mean, marriage is basically your best friend uh, plus the sexual element. I didn't have a sexual element with my male friends, but that's one of the, uh, the reasons you, you, uh, you have this unique bond, the friendship plus the sexual tension, the, the sexual act uh, with, uh, with the person you marry. So that's, that's a particularly close relationship, but it's, it's, it, it's tends to be easier to be able to make such friendships outside of marriage with the same sex. In fact, I, I have on the internet something I wrote about 10 years ago. I think it's something like eight questions or, or whatever number of questions you should answer before you get married. And, and a lot of people broke up their relationship <laughs> with someone they thought they would marry after they read my questions. And that was great news to me because it's, it's, it's better to get divorced before marriage than after marriage. So uh, one of them is, is the person you are thinking of marrying, does he have any male, close male friends and does she have any close female friends? It's a very uh, good sign if they do. I don't say it's a disqualifying sign if they don't, but uh, I think it's a yellow flag. It's not a red flag, but it is a yellow flag. So yes, I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, as regards the Bible and friendship, obviously David and Jonathan is the is the most uh, most obvious example of an incredibly close bond, and uh, the, the the it's interesting the Torah or the Tanakh does not spend that much time on that issue, and I I, I don't have an explanation as to why, but I. Let's put it this way. If you share a love of the Torah with somebody, that is, that is a, a good basis for a friendship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's another thing, isn't it? Values, having uh, common values. And I think that is an, an, just an essential ingredient of friends. You mentioned that you, you, sorry, I just want to clarify, you were saying that it's important that, that when you're looking for a spouse, that they have close friends. Um, can you elaborate on why? And I actually just—I just recalled in my head there was once um, a guy was a girl I was dating, and she was um, quite sort of adamant that you know friends sort of you know are, are, are a bit distant, especially at the beginning stages of a marriage. And for me, I mean, obviously that you have the spouse has to be your priority and come first. To me, this was a bit of a alarm bell. Tell me again, because sometimes the transmission isn't uh, complete. 
She said to you, what about the having girlfriends? Well, no, just having fr just friends in general should sort of be, you should need to distance yourself a bit from them, especially in the early stages Why? is marriage. I don't understand. Why? I completely agree with you. I, I, to me, I, I actually said, said to her, or maybe I just said it internally, I can't even remember, it was so, so long ago. I said, you're actually asking me to, to do something I could not do. Because th 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 these are people that mean so much to me. I can't, you're, you're asking me to do something that's literally not possible. Uh, many years ago, my third year at the uni, as you call it, I was at the University of Leeds. Uh, don't ask me why, but I was. And uh, it, it, was, it was a great year, as it turned out. Uh, but I, I did note uh, in, a, in, a, in an article I wrote upon return that I had made friends with, um, I make friends very easily. It was, it's a blessing in my life. And I made friends with uh, fellow students from, I remember Canada, India, Germany, uh, and, and I'm sure a couple of other, Australia, but I didn't make any English friends that year. And uh, I, I think that um, this notion of, uh, of intimacy with anybody perhaps except the spouse seemed to have been more foreign to the to the Brits, British students than to others. But I, I so I, I guessed wrong in your case, but I, I still do recall that belief. Yeah, and I also think about, you know, I, I see some people, thank God it hasn't happened with, 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 my, with my friends, but I see some people, once they get married, they seem to almost drop everything, not just friends, but everything in their life. And I, not only do I find it sad and, 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 and disturbing and just and, and wrong, but I also think it's, it's not smart because what happens if, you know, a spouse can't provide every, every need that you have? What happens if something goes wrong? What, you know, what, it, 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 I don't know. I, I guess, I don't know, everyone has their own reasons for doing what they do, but I just find it just a, a bad approach to life. It, 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 was, it was my joy, uh, great, it is, continues to be a joy of my life, the, the closeness that my wife feels to my male friends, and, uh, the, uh, and I adore her uh, uh, female friends. In fact, it was her female friend who was responsible for our meeting. And uh, I, uh, I can't thank her enough. So I, I, don't, I don't quite understand that. It, love, it, it, we have a saying in America, and you might have it as well, but love is not a pie. You, you, you take a slice out of a pie and there's one slice less of the pie. But love doesn't work that way. It's like anyone who has a child is convinced they cannot love the next child as much and lo and behold <laughs> that's not what happens you you uh that's one of the nice things about love is it, it doesn't diminish the more people that you include in in the circle so I, I don't i don't you look you can't spend as much time if you're used to going out with your male friends to a casino uh, or to uh, football games, uh, or or what have you, or or the cinema, and uh, you you now get married. Uh, I think that by and large you should uh, you should try to spend as much time with your spouse as possible. But uh, I I am not one 
bit less close to my male friends uh, having ha being married. So I'm, 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 I agree with you. Good, good, good. I suspect there's going to be a lot of agreeing on things in this uh, interview. Um, I want to talk, move to some religious and Jewish matters. Um, this is sort of just a more broadly religious thing. You, you speak a lot about your love for America. Um, I also have a love, love of America as, as, an, as, as an idea and what, what it's, it was about. But I feel like a lot of people just aren't so familiar uh, with, with what America was intended to be. I personally believe America is one of the Torah's greatest creations. Um, can you explain sort of why, uh, why, why, that, why that is the case? And also, I, I don't know if you've asked this before, but what do you think would be some of Judaism's biggest critiques of America and modern America today? Because we often talk about what it brought, but- The last sentence, some of Judaism's what about America? Judaism's biggest critiques, critiques about oh. modern America. Well, first of all, uh, I do love America and I'm, I'm watching it uh, uh, destroyed. And I, I, I say this with incredible sadness. Uh, because a, a gener since World War II, each generation has learned nothing about how to appreciate liberty. Liberty is a value, not, a, not an instinct. And uh, the utopian streak of the left, uh, well, you know, there was this racism and this slavery. And of course, because there's no wisdom on the left, the, they don't understand that slavery was universal. There was no country, nation, ethnic group, or tribe that did not have slavery. So a, a person who has even a modicum of wisdom does not ask who had slavery. They ask who abolished slavery. The norm is slavery. The exception is the abolition of slavery. And actually beginning with your country, uh, with uh, British Christians, the abolitionist movement arose and of course it spread to the US and caused the greatest loss of life in the war that ended slavery in the United States. But uh, you know, every, everybody had slaves. I mean, it was, as, it was as normal as eating to have a slave in human history. But then arose the, these countries in the West that abolished it and in large measure because of the Bible. Uh, that that's the the British abolitionist movement uh, used the Bible as it, as its text for why it should be abolished. I, I make that very clear in my in my rational Bible commentary on Exodus. I mean, there's a law that you cannot return a slave to its master. I mean, that's three thousand years before any anybody even thought in such a way. You can't return a slave. Do not steal means you cannot kidnap people and, and in order to to sell them as slaves. That's the first definition of the of the uh, of the commandment: "Thou shalt not steal." Is for is, is in Hebrew "Ganevat nefashot." You you can't steal people. Then then it also includes, of course, property. You can't steal property, but it's first and foremost you can't steal people. That would have alone meant that there was no transatlantic slave trade. So uh, America was founded by Christians who were in love with the Torah. The, the most iconic symbol of the American Revolution is called the Liberty Bell, 
There's only one thing written on the Liberty Bell, and it is a verse from Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. A lot of the founders knew Hebrew. Not only did they know the Torah, they knew Hebrew. And anyway, who, who knows Leviticus today? Who even knows what Leviticus is? And they quoted it, and that's the only thing written on the Liberty Bell. And you shall proclaim liberty throughout uh, the, um, what is it, uh, th throughout? Throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Yes, to all its inhabitants. So uh, the, the founders all acknowledged that this was, this was their basis, specifically the Torah more than the rest of the Old Testament, which they loved, and the New Testament, which they loved, but it, it was the Torah. In fact, uh, the founders said that America was the second Israel. They didn't deny the Jews were the first Israel, the first chosen people. They thought of America as the second chosen people. And I, I have believed that as an American Jew, that I am a member of two chosen peoples. But I, I'm watching the experiment be destroyed by... Uh, by the elites in the United States, the best educated are the worst. And, and I am very sad to say that Jews are disproportionately involved uh, in the tearing down of the United States. Uh, when Jews leave uh, Judaism, uh, it's very often unhealthy results that, uh, that take place. Not always, but, uh, but very often. So uh, what would the Torah's critique of the US be? I think that the Torah, uh, would have said about America, with the exception, obviously, of racism, which, and by the way, America became the least racist multiracial country on earth. But uh, let's say till 1970s America, it, it would have said, you know, uh, we're all created in God's image and God has no color. So how could you possibly have a racist uh, attitude? That would have been its biggest critique. Uh, otherwise, I, I do believe that America was is very much a Torah-based society, was. And now the, the emphasis that uh, on race, that, that color is, is of any significance, is the most anti-Torah idea I can think of. Uh, you went to yeshiva, I went to yeshiva, so you know you know, Lama Nivra Adam Yechidi. Why? Why was the first human being created as a as one person, so that nobody should ever say my forefather was more important than than yours? The the Torah is utterly unethnically interested. Utterly, God has no color. Adam and Eve have no color, and the Jews had no color. The Jews left with an Erev Rav. The Jews were not even ethnically pure. The Jews left with a bunch of, of non-Jews whom were told over and over to love, to, to love the stranger who lives in our midst. Uh, the very fact that, the, the, that you could convert to being an Israelite was almost unique. You, you couldn't convert to being something in the ancient world. If, if you wanted to be, you could convert to a religion. Anyway, that that was true, but you couldn't convert to a nation. But when you join the Jews, you join the nation, not just the religion. So we, we don't know, uh, we don't give a damn about ethnicity. So an America today is living a, a total repudiation of Torah ethics. Wow. And, and I, I personally believe that when it comes to values, 
you know, and, and changing a nation's values, it, it, it doesn't happen from the top down and from, from less, you know, big political changes. It happens from bottom up. And the thing that you're doing, you know, you, I've heard you say that you're far more interested in influence than power. I feel exactly the same way in terms of my own life and what I want to do. But I actually think that in some way, influence has more power than power does. Yes, uh, that's fair to say, but I, I, I agree with you. But the, the original point is, is my point and yours. I'm not disagreeing with you in the least that uh, I, I have zero desire. I mean, truly zero. Uh, 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 <laughs> I rather study entomology uh, than have power over any other human being. But the desire to have power over other human beings is apparently one of the ubiquitous ugly traits in human nature. Human nature has a lot of ugly traits. That's just the way it is. You can become a beautiful human being, but you, you have to work against your nature to do so. Apparently, the desire to have power over other people is, it's not universal, but it is ubiquitous. And that is exactly, again, what the left wants. It, want, it wants to control as many people's lives as possible. So this, this is a very ugly part of human nature. Now, Dennis, you wrote a book about anti-Semitism called Why the Jews, where you try to explain the root cause of anti-Semitism. Um, I've always held that you cannot explain anti-Semitism, its irrationality, its intensity, uh, its contradictory reasons for hating the Jews without recognising that there's a deeper spiritual phenomenon, spiritual battle that's going on. And I actually think that trying to explain anti-Semitism without this can, can lead, you, lead you and lead historians to go completely insane. Um, can you explain a bit about um, this from your perspective and what the book tries to argue about the deeper spiritual components going on when it comes to anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is hatred of Sinai. This is Absolutely. not new to me. The rabbis uh, uh, said this thousands of years ago. So he, here is... Uh, here is my chiddush, as it were, uh, my a point that I came up with many years ago. The rabbis of the Talmud spend more time discussing whether you can eat an egg born on a Jewish holy day than they do on why Jews are hated. Uh, I always point this out to non-Jews and to Jews. Uh, and the reason is, they, it wasn't a puzzle to them why the Jews are hated. They knew the reason and they were right. Uh, and they have a play on words, which your viewers will find of interest if they don't already know this. The Hebrew word for hatred is Sinah, and the Hebrew word for Sinai, Mount Sinai, is Sinai. They have a different consonant in the beginning, but it's irrelevant. They sound the same, Sinah, Sinai. And that play on words is the rabbi's way of, of explaining the great Sinah, the great hatred, comes from Sinai from Sinai, and they're right. The Jews introduced to the world a God who makes moral demands and judges everyone, not just Jews, everyone. This was a, a brand new idea in human history. People don't like to be morally judged. They hate it. So the Jews have never been forgiven for their invention of a, of a universal God who judges everybody by the same moral yardstick. And 
that has been the root of, of Jew hatred because Jew hatred is unique and I could prove this. Every ethnic group is disliked by another ethnic group. That's universal. The, the Poles don't like the Germans, the Russians don't like the Poles, the Irish don't like the, the English. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's universal. But only Jew uh, bigotry or Jew hatred is, is exterminationist. Anti-Semitism is the belief that the Jews should be annihilated. It's not the belief, I don't like Jews. I don't care if you don't like Jews. I care if you want to kill Jews. If you don't like Jews, it means nothing to me. I am not, I am not aching to be liked. I it means nothing to me. As a Jew or, or as, a, as a human or anything, I do not live to be liked. But I don't want to be exterminated. I don't want to be murdered. So uh, that's where Jew hatred is unique. The desire to exterminate the Jew, and that, that has been throughout, uh, throughout Jewish history. Uh, what is it? Israel is no more. Isn't that what the Romans said? I mean, that was the, 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 the belief. Uh, so that is a, is a unique aspect uh, of Jew hatred. The God part uh, is the Sinai part. And here is, I said, I had my, my, my chidosh, my new idea, but it's not new anymore. If Sinai is the root of, of Jew hatred, of anti-Semitism, Sinai is the solution as well to anti-Semitism. If we brought the world to Sinai, we Jews, that would end anti-Semitism. A world that embraced the Ten Commandments would not wish to exterminate the Jew. Jews, however, don't bring the world. Jews don't live their mission. Orthodox Jews don't, and non-Orthodox Jews don't. This is the, uh, the great lament of my life. If you ask a Christian, do you have a mission to the world? You could ask a 12-year-old. He'd say, of course, bring the world to Christ. Bring the good news of Christ's coming to the world. Ask a Muslim, you have a mission to the world? A 10-year-old would say, of course. Bring everybody to Allah and to the Quran. Ask a Jew, what is your mission to the world? See, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, they won't even have a mission to the world in most cases. The Chabad is the one exception. They spread the seven laws of the children of Noah. But if you ask uh, Orthodox Jews, no, no, our concern is to, uh, is to make sure that Jews live halachically, that they do the mitzvot, the, the mitzvot. That, that's what an Orthodox Jew would answer. So there's no mission to the world. Uh, in in my, all my years at yeshiva, I never heard once that we have a mission to the world. And as for uh, other Jews, secular Jews do think they have a mission to the world, social justice. Uh, that's why Jews embraced, disproportionately embraced communism and all the other isms that substitute for Judaism. So ironically, the only Jews who have a mission to the world are the Jews who basically don't give a damn about Judaism uh, or think they do, but they have, uh, they have confused it with all sorts of leftist isms. Our task is to bring the world to Sinai. 
the world should be blessed through us, as God said to Abraham. That's the reason God chose us, to, so that every all the world's nations shall be blessed through us. And uh, if the world lived by the Ten Commandments alone, we would be living uh, in, in a heavenly sphere. But uh, as I said, how many Jews think it's their task to bring the world to the, the or bring the Ten Commandments to the world? Not many. I must tell you, I, 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 would, I would make certainly make an exception for the yeshiva I went to, which was Aisha Torah. Uh, it was founded by uh, an incredible man. I don't know if you ever met him, Rabbi Noah Weinberg. I did. Um, it was incredible. Wow. Because I certainly did feel there, and, I, and you're probably right that it was an exception to the rule. I did feel there that there was a very keen sense of, of global mission. And, and frankly, that, that global mission, which was you know, Abraham's mission, is... What, what inspires me every day in my Jewish life. And, and it's, you're right, we, you need a mission and, and we need to push that more. Well, that's why I am, I'm taking the time to be with you. You give me hope. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to take with that, uh, that compliment. R Rabbi Sachs, who I want to speak about next, uh, he said, compliments are fine, just don't inhale. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your relationship with uh, uh, Rabbi Sachs because I, I, I know that you did a few um, uh, com had a few conversations with him publicly. Um, I I mean, did, did you did you see the video of the two of us in Canada? Yeah, I, I absolutely did. So, yeah. yeah, and I just we, wondered. We were, if... the, we were the two speakers at a Pesach retreat for Chabad in in uh, British Columbia. And I'm, I thank God uh, now that he's passed. Especially, I thank God that that was videoed. Well, I, I just wondered if, I, I mean, I would have loved to have been there. Just wondered if you had, give, given his r really sort of tragic and early passing, um, if you had any particular reflections on, on Rabbi Sachs, any, any personal encounters, any stories to share, any particular things that you've learned from him? Well, he, he embodied what, I, what I'm talking about. He, he, was, um, he was a Kiddush Hashem. That's the, that's, that's the greatest uh, mitzvah that he he sanctified god before the world when when non-jews heard him saw him spoke to him the immediate response was not just what an impressive man but it must be an impressive religion and and that's that's the greatest compliment you could pay him absolutely absolutely um i want to talk briefly about israel and anti-zionism you speak a lot about that uh, Rabbi Sachs also spoke uh, a fair bit about, about that. Um, you, you believe, as do I, that anti-Zionism uh, is anti-Semitism. Um, but you can find some people in politics, I certainly find this in the UK, um, where you'll have politicians who, they certainly don't talk the anti-Zionist talk of wanting to eradicate Israel. There's no talk of, you know, that level of vilification or demonization or delegitimization. But I always seem to find that they always seem to be the first to criticize Israel whenever Israel engages in a defensive war. Um, and they're kind of one of the last to actually stand up for Israel when it actually comes to the moment when, you know, the chips are down. Are those people anti-Semitic? Well, look, let, let's be clear. Uh, the, as I, when I said, when I spoke at the Oxford Union, your, your moral compass is broken if you don't see the 
the moral superiority of Israel to its neighbors. Doesn't mean inherent superiority. I mean, I, I just have to make that clear for those who got a graduate degree. So uh, Israel, Israel is a free country. Israel has a free press. Israel has enormous self-criticism. Israel has a free and independent judiciary. Israel uh, enables its uh, Arab citizens, even those who uh, don't believe Israel has a right to exist, to vote, to pray, to travel. Uh, probably the freest Arabs in the, in the Middle East are the Arabs of Israel. Uh, uh, gays have the, one of the biggest parades on earth uh, for gay pride parade in, uh, in Tel Aviv each year. Uh, uh, if there's no such thing as a, as a gay parade in uh, in Egypt or in Jordan, uh, let alone Saudi Arabia, uh, and 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 you're going to tell me that that there is somehow this either equivalence, moral equivalence between Israel and, and Hamas, or, or or Israel and Fatah, or Israel and the Palestinians, or Israel and and any of the others, uh, or Iran. I mean, I, there's something wrong with you. You don't think clearly. Your your moral compass is broken. Uh, so th this doesn't make you an anti-Semite. It makes you a fool. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, foolishness, which is the opposite of wisdom, is the mother of evil. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I feel I feel the same as you. And it's it's uh, I'm I'm often baffled when I see people who say one thing when let's say the tide has come with regard to Israel, but when the chips are down and Israel needs friends, they seem to deserve Well, I know. Well, look, I mean, you know, it, it is astonishing when, when you have these folks on the left in America, Britain, uh, Israel's disproportionate response to Hamas sending all these rockets to, to murder as many Israelis as possible. Well, what does that even mean, disproportionate? What, what is Israel to do? If Israel sent as many rockets... Uh, over uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to Palestinian territories, as was sent to to Israel, uh, you know, over Gaza, as, as Gaza sent to Israel, would would that be proportionate? Presumably, but it would certainly kill a lot of uh, of Gazans. I, it's 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 it, people come to your house and and they're armed and they try to kill the members of your family. And and you throw a grenade at them. Would would are you supposed to be attacked for disproportionate response? What does a proportionate response mean? As many bullets as they shoot, they're the aggressors. <laughs> That's the issue. Absolutely, um, Dennis. Uh, the one of the last topics I wanted to to, to uh, discuss with you was actually um, your view about Jewish Christian relations. A lot of Jewish people, I mean, I don't know what it's like so much in America, but certainly I find uh, in Europe um, are very concerned about having too close Jewish Christian relations. Also, and I don't I don't mean sort of one to one, but in terms of uh, in institutional, uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, 
awareness of the, 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 the history of certainly the, the way the, uh, Christianity and Christian anti-Semitism has been to Jewish people uh, in Europe, there's a lot of cynicism when it comes to accepting Christian support of Israel. You make a distinction between European and American Christianity as being sort of different experiences. Um, the first thing I want to ask, can you, can you explain what you mean by that? The second question I want to ask, I'm going to throw them all in if that's okay. The second question I was going to ask is, what do you say to those who are skeptical of, let's say, evangelical support for Israel because they say, well, it's only a cynical ploy to get all the Jews there? And the third thing I'd want to say is, do you think for European Jews, um, how, how do you think we should feel about uh, Jewish-Christian relations? So I'll begin with the last one uh, first. I, I always tell American Jews who speak about the Christian anti-Semitism that they're talking about European Christian anti-Semitism. The Jews of America are the luckiest Jews who ever lived outside of Israel. It's, it's not an opinion, it's a fact. The, the, the United States, of course there was anti-Semitism in the U.S. It, it's, the U.S. is composed of flawed human beings. My father wrote his senior class thesis at the City College of New York on anti-Semitism in America, places that wouldn't sell Jews homes, law firms that wouldn't allow Jewish lawyers in, Harvard with its uh, numerous clauses, its quota on, on not admitting Jews. And yet my father raised my brother and me to believe that we were the luckiest Jews in history to be American Jews, and he was right. That's why it's a Jew who wrote God Bless America, one of the most famous songs in the United States. It, it, it was a, compared to anywhere else, as the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe said, America was the golden of Medina. It, it was the golden country. And uh, he said it at a time when, you know, it, it, there was more anti-Semitism in America. So yes, there is a difference between, a major difference between Europe's Christians and America's Christians. So that gives America's Christians even less basis upon which to be suspicious of Christian support for Jews in Israel. They're bigots. Uh, many of my fellow Jews are bigots. And uh, I'm sad to say it, but it's just a fact. The, the, the biggest supporters in Europe as well, generally speaking, the biggest supporters of Israel and the Jews are Christians, including uh, often in Europe. Why we would uh, reject them because their ancestors committed pogroms is like rejecting a black rejecting white support today because the ancestors of some whites were slave owners. It's completely uh, irrational, it's self-destructive, and it's immoral. I, I, I don't even understand it. I'm going to judge you by what your ancestors did? Well, it might not be judging per se, but it might be a, I'm, I'm nervous of, let's say, of, of, of us having too close relationship or taking your support. Or... Well, I don't know what there is to be nervous about. If they end up not being, if they end up being uh, hostile to us, then I don't know. I, I don't even know. I truly don't understand it. I, 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 with Christians more than Jews as a general rule in my life. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I truly don't understand what is there to be nervous about. 
why aren't Jews nervous about the left? The left hates Israel. The, the left supports the enemies of Israel's existence. The left is teaching uh, young uh, kids on, on American college campuses to loathe Israel. And, and then that's they're not nervous about. They're nervous about the Christians who have knights to honor Israel uh, singing Havanagila in Hebrew, uh, as, as I have spoken at many of these events at churches and have seen and have been moved to tears. Uh, look. Yeah, but then they say, Dennis. It's, I have such disdain for people who are ingrates. The, the ugliest of the human traits is ingratitude. The ingratitude of, of Jewry to Christians today, and especially in America, is, is, is just loathsome and self-destructive. I made a deal with um, the, the leading Christian of the time outside of Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell. When I was in my late 20s, I was, I was almost your age, basically, and I was the head of a, a big Jewish institution in California. So we brought people out for interviews. So one of them was Jerry Falwell, who was, who was as I said, the best known American Christian after Billy Graham. And he's a fundamentalist Christian, and he was very supportive of Israel. And I, it's actually on video. I'd like to get a hold of this video. It's, it, it's, I would love to put it on YouTube. And I, at one point, I said to him, Reverend Falwell, can we make, can we shake on on on, a, on this deal? You and your supporters will support Israel and the Jewish people until Jesus comes. And we, in turn, promise to recognize him when he does. And uh, he shook on it, and I shook on it, and I don't understand what Jews are worried about. Let's they, First of all, they don't support us in order to bring Jesus. There's nothing in Christian theology that believes a Christian can hasten the coming of Jesus, okay? So this is all made up by Christian haters among Jews. It's a lie. It is a 100% lie that that's why they support us. I, I'll tell you why they support us. They, they support us because it says in Genesis that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. They think God will bless them for blessing the Jews. Not a bad reason, by the way, in my opinion, and I agree with them. I think God does bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews. So I happen to agree with them since I happen to take the Torah seriously, unlike most Jews. Well, I, I, I'm totally on the same page as you, and you express that better than, than I ever have. In fact, just, just before my final question, one thing that I want to just quickly uh, pick you up on is a criticism that I've heard of um, Jewish political commentators who are on the right, who are conservatives. One of the criticisms that uh, people uh, might make about, um, uh, well, let's say religious or conservative commentators make about their fellow uh, commentators on uh, the left is that uh, they sometimes conflate their politics uh, and religion and sometimes project their political values onto uh, religion. Actually, a friend of mine, Jonathan Neumann, um, who wrote a book about this, I believe I actually saw you on the blurb um, as writing uh, um, an affirmation about the book and he was talking about that from the perspective of the left. Is there ever a danger that such a thing can occur on the right and for, for conservative political commentators um, like yourself um, where the two are conflated or perhaps the, let's say the 
the the um, you know conventional wisdom of conservatives um, gets conflated with a religious position. So f an example I'm thinking of is abortion. So uh, if I, I, I haven't looked at it into too much detail, but I, I do find there are Jew in, in your case, but I do find there are Jewish conser politically conservative spokespeople who will just take the classic conser American conservative position on abortion, that it is a form of murder. But the Jewish, and they are often observant Jews, but the Jewish uh, Orthodox or observant position is that it's a bit more nuanced than that. And it's certainly, it's, 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 it's certainly not seen as a positive thing, but there's a bit more leniency. And it's not, as far as I understand it, it's not seen as murder in the, certainly in the first trimester. Um, I don't know about the later stages. I haven't looked at it in too much detail, but just wondered if you ever feel that that is a concern. Well, uh, every Orthodox Jew I've spoken to and, and, and all the halacha that I have read, including Rambam. Rambam, ironically, Rambam uh, is a bit more lenient with abortion vis-a-vis -vis Jews than with non-Jews. He uses the word murder. When non-Jews have abortions, he believes it's murder. That's the term he uses. Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't walk around calling it murder as it happens. Uh, my, my position uh, is that uh, it, it's got to be worth more than a worm. Uh, that's as radical as I get, that somehow the human fetus is not a worm. And for the pro-choice people, it is. It literally has no worth, none. It is, it, it's an astonishing position to hold. It's certainly not based on science. So uh, I wouldn't ban it, by the way. I would ban third trimester, except if the woman's health is at stake, which almost is never the case. So uh, I, I, I don't know uh, how to answer that further than that. I am, I, 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 do, I do think it is wrong when I hear people refer to it as a Holocaust. Uh, as, I, as I have often noted, you know, Jews, would have, uh, Jews would have been very, very hurt if every, uh, if, if between 1939 and 1945, uh, every uh, pregnant uh, Jewish woman had a forced abortion, but they would have taken that infinitely over the Holocaust. So uh, I, I never call it a Holocaust. I don't like that language. I don't even say the word murder, but it is homicide. I mean, there's, it, 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 it's got to be something. The notion a woman can do what she wants with her own body is, it's true a woman should be allowed to do what she wants with her own body, but it's not her body. It's in her body. Nobody asks a pregnant woman, how's your body? They go, how's your baby? So it, it's just another one of the enormous lies that, that come from that part of the spectrum that are part of our language. As regards uh, Judaism conflated with conservatism, I am conservative because I take the Torah seriously. That, that's, uh, that, that's, I do conflate them. There, there's no question about it. How could they? How could I not conflate them? I wouldn't be a serious Jew or a serious thinker. 
what, what am I going to say? My Judaism has nothing to do with, with how I, I look at life, that I judge people not by the color, the color of their skin. That comes from Judaism, as I said earlier. Everything the left stands for, I, I, I believe, is immoral. And I, I can't think of an, I'm not talking liberals. Care for the poor? They don't care for the poor. They, 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 the, the left cares for the poor as much as the communists cared for the worker. They use the poor. They use the black. They use, they use every group they speak uh, the, in, in, in favor of. Uh, the, so, of course, I conflate the two. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I, I would be intellectually dishonest. However, having said that, I founded a synagogue in Los Angeles a few years ago with some friends. And uh, we uh, were very traditional. We believe the Torah is from God, but we're, we, uh, we do use electricity on Shabbat. So we have a Zoom minion for the last year. And I have been teaching it uh, for 25 years every Shabbat when I'm in California. And, and of course, now I've been on Zoom every Shabbat. I teach every every week, and I have not once talked politics. If you if you were a person on the left and you zoomed in to my Torah minion, we call it the Torah minion, you wouldn't have any idea what our politics was. Whereas I get my conservatism from the Torah, I do not use my teaching at the minion to advance my conservatism. I teach the Torah and you will draw whatever conclusion you want from it. We, we actually forbid uh, questions with regard to the political situation. That's how strict we are not to do what the left does with, uh, in their synagogues. Right, and I think that's an I think that's an important principle, Dennis. You've been so incredibly generous with your time, and I'm really it's been such an honour to speak with you. I just want to, my very final question. I just had to ask because I, I see you as someone that's very very uh, secure and firm in your beliefs. Have you ever changed your opinion on anything? Uh, on a lot of things, uh, actually, but. Um... Here's the irony. I started out as a liberal and as a Democrat. And both left me. I didn't leave either of them. I was taught as a liberal that you judge people by their character, not their color. I was taught that you do not have separate dormitories for blacks and whites. Now the liberals go along with the left that you should have a black dormitory on a college campus or that you judge people by their color. So uh, I am the same liberal, ironically. It, it looks like I've changed, but it changed. The only thing that made me leave liberals and join the Republican Party was I came to realize I, I agreed with Ronald Reagan's. Ronald Reagan said one thing, and that's when I changed my party affiliation. Government is not the solution, it's the problem. That's the American view of government. It should be extremely limited. And as I have put it a hundred times, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Uh, but uh, on, on, on uh, specific issues, well, I'll give you one, one, you 
your your viewers can look at I for 20 years I've been writing a column every week so there are a thousand of my columns on the internet a few weeks ago I wrote a column called the good German and this was a, a big change in my life just recently uh, I grew up having contempt for the good German quote unquote who was the good German the German who in no way participated in any actions against Jews, but said nothing. And I now realize that it was nothing specific to Germans. And my next column was the good American. Human beings don't speak up. In the United States, if you speak up uh, as a conservative, you, you will be put down. You will be ostracized on Facebook. You, you, you might even be fired from your job, but you won't be sent to the Gulag and you won't be sent to Auschwitz. The Gestapo won't come to your door and the KGB won't come to your door. So I no longer have the contempt for the quiet German or quiet Russian under Stalin that I used to have. Now that I have seen the quiet American and the quiet Brit, the quiet Australian and the quiet Canadian people who are easily intimidated. Uh, and uh, that's the human condition. So this was a huge, uh, a huge change in my inner life uh, that, uh, that took place recently. I used to be for the minimum wage. I now have come to realize it destroys jobs. And that's just, that's far lower in its import in some ways than what I just told you before about the good German, good American. But I'm I am I'm completely open to changing my mind. I don't I don't want to I don't want to spend another minute with a bad idea. <laughs> That's my theory. Why would I want to be wrong? <laughs> so I am completely committed to changing my mind because if I'm wrong, I wasted so much time and I've lost credibility. But. Uh, I don't have an agenda other than what is true and what is good. And that has uh, led me to a lot of, I think, sober and good decisions. Well, Dennis, it's been a real honor. Thank you so, so much for joining us on JTV today. Thank you for what I've learned from you over the span of many years now. Um, and I'm just so, so grateful for your time. And I wish you many, many more years of uh, influencing other people. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, it, it, you will know when you get older how much that means to somebody who, who uh, hopes that his ideas will live on. So God bless you. Thank you so much, Dennis. Appreciate it.